I think with all insight also, there is a danger that people within these businesses tend to be kind of uh, a bit cottage industry. They love what they do. They love the craft of what they do. And therefore, they don't charge properly in the first place or don't value their output properly. And they think, you know, we're going to charge on a daily rate because this is it. And I'm quite happy to receive that. But if you're building a group or building a business, you can't operate like that. You have to look at what the problem is and charging to solve the problem and giving a fee rather than a sort of working it out on a spreadsheet of time management. Welcome to Future View and a slightly different interview with Tony Ball for the Green Square. Now, this episode focuses on key factors to consider and great advice if you're a tech platform or agency or you must prepare yourself for some type of investment. So that could be for a full sale or a capital infusion to get you to the next level. Whatever the case, Tony has a very pragmatic perspective to help guide you, as well as a really good take on the market as a whole. Tony's also had a fascinating professional career himself, raising capital, building up and selling his own business in the Marcom space before setting up a corporate advisory firm to help others do the same. You may also get some great tips on bands. Listen in to find out what I mean there. I'd also like to take a moment to say thank you to Brighter for sponsoring this episode. Brighter is an international research and insights consultancy specializing in healthcare technology, telecommunications, and gaming. You'll find out more at brighter-global.com. That's Brighter with a Y, so B-R-Y-T-E-R, then global.com. Now, onto the interview. So, Tony, firstly, lovely to see you, actually, after a while. Um, thanks very much thank for you. joining today. You're welcome. Nice to see you. Brilliant. So if we could start with a little bit of an icebreaker, we're going to get into your corporate history and all the interesting deals you've been doing. But what's something most people wouldn't know about you? Not necessarily deepest, darkest secret. It could be, if you want to be, but just something that isn't in the public domain. At 17, I was a guitarist in a band that got a contract with Warner Brothers with a promise of a tour in the States. So I spent my last bit for mucking about in studios. Uh, Warner then tried to turn us into Foreigner which we hated. So the whole thing fell apart. I failed my last six exams and got kicked out. <laughs> so I restarted sixth form at another college. Changed two of my A-level subjects from chemistry and physics to economics and accounting. And then I went to uni and did a four-year business degree, majoring in finance and marketing. So the rest is history, really. But but I still have my 76 Bender Strand. Yeah, that's well, that was the obvious question I was going to ask. I mean, what, <laughs> did, what did you play and do you still play? Oh, I don't play so much now. No, I, still, I still have my, my fabulous guitar, but my children, my boys are both accomplished musicians. They're 22 and 25. And they've both been in various successful bands and they're streets ahead of me. So I think we've got, between all of us, I think we've got something like 14 guitars and basses and various bits and bobs. So most of which is stored in our house, even though the kids both live out, out now. So hey ho. Well, you know, maybe with the development of AI, it can be like this new Beatles song. You know, they can extract your your original work um, <laughs> oh, God, no. from, from oh, a dodgy yeah. recording and add it into theirs. Yeah, it'd be a very dodgy recording, and I certainly wouldn't suggest any of that. <laughs> so, no, no I, I'm okay, sure. No, my, my kids are far, far better and far more interesting. Well, I, I'm sure. I'm sure it must have been pretty good for you know Warners to sign you up even if they tried to turn you into some commercial proposition that you... It was be. easier in those days because there wasn't so many bands about. So you didn't actually have to be that good to get recognised. You just needed a good manager who could get you in front of the right people at the right time. So these days, there's so many people producing great music and it's all freely available on everything, particularly places like SoundCloud where people push themselves that you kind of, it's hard to choose and it's really hard for bands to get noticed. 
So, you know, both my son's bands have huge followings, lots of streaming, um, but neither of them really broke it. And you'd be listening to their stuff and everyone that listens to it or watches the video goes, well, this is amazing. But it's really so difficult these days. Back then, it was really down to um, supply and demand. Go on, you've got to take the opportunity now to give a shout out to your son's bands for this, <laughs> for this podcast audience. This, this could make or break them of, you know, the hundreds of listeners we have on this. No, uh, well, both of, well, um, my eldest son, he's uh, no longer in a band at the moment. Um, he was in a band called Kalpa, K-A-L-P-A, that you can find on Spotify. Um, tracks like What Will It Take, um, you can see on YouTube. Um, but he's also in a band called Flat Party, who have just signed a contract, um, but he's left because he actually works for an ad agency and it was involved doing a six-week tour and all that sort of stuff. So Flat Party, you can also see, um, they've been on Radio 6 quite a bit. My youngest son, um, oh, come back to Jamie, he also does a lot of techno and electronic music. So Primrose is his sort of DJ name. You can find that on Spotify too, um, some of his things there. My youngest son, Will, is in a band called Drivers, which is Manchester-based. I think they're the second biggest student band in Manchester. He's no longer a student there. He's left, but he's spending the year there as their band's growing quite quickly. Fantastic. I will look them up. I said, I'm not what they describe as a Radio 6 dad. However, <laughs> I, I, I will make an effort. I am so, a Radio 6 dad, and Will's band supported a band recently called Marugia. We're on Radio 6 a lot. And he said, and he said at the gig, it was full, he said you would have loved it, Dad. It was full of Radio 6 dads. Well, there we go. Now, talking about good managers, how did you, or what was your journey of moving from, as you said, yeah, studying business and accounting, economics, marketing, all that type of thing at university, and then ending up at Green Square? And why Green Square? And what does Green Square do? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, I've had a pretty interesting ride, to be fair. I joined Midland Bank on their finance graduate scheme in 89 after my business degree. Qualified SEMA and a chartered corporate treasurer as well. Did that fairly quickly. Then moved into the investment banking side, doing internal M&A for Midland Bank itself in 1991. Uh, with Andrew Moss, who's another partner here, we actually both trained together on that scheme. Um, Midland Bank ran out of money in 1992, so we sold it to HSBC. We're part of a really close-knit team following which I transferred to HSBC. Really enjoyed the M&A side still, but I just didn't want to get trapped in the city. Um, just didn't want to get stuck doing investment banking for the rest of my days, although I enjoyed the M&A side. Then a role came up at a big US systems firm called Unisys, which I took and subsequently got promoted to CFO of their biggest UK bit. So I was there for a couple of years. Then in 96, got headhunted to join a PLC as Chief Operating Officer of their Marketing Services Practice, which was a group of five marketing agencies. And the rest of that group was actually in sort of industrials and um, things like that. Um, turned out they're thinking of IPOing this whole marketing services business separately, which never would have worked because it was just wasn't sizable and I didn't want it to be one of those um, companies that end up floundering about on AIM and not going anywhere. So the CEO and I got together and got PA backing from 3i to do a management buyout. So we did that in 97 and we built that group via a mix of organic growth and acquisition and ultimately became the second biggest independent in the UK. Uh, we sold it in 2007 to Australia's Enero. Um, but during that time, I had various different side hustles, helping various friends with their businesses, which was great fun, really enjoyed that. And I learned a lot from working with other people. But I think ultimately having a hands-on investment banking, banking background 
relevant qualifications and a personal experience of building and exiting a marketing services group, it made perfect sense to set up a specialist Marcoms M&A house, which, um, which I did with three very talented people back in 2008. So, so you stuck with marketing services. I mean, it seems like you, you fell into the marketing services world. Yeah. But then why did you decide to double down on that, apart from the fact you had experience in it? I mean, some people run a mile from marketing yeah. services once they've seen what's evolved. But what pulled you into it? Um, I think I've always been a very creative person. And the bizarre thing is, if and I sound too esoteric here, but you know, having had mates of mine that have done astro charts and all that sort of stuff, they said if they didn't know what I did for a job, they never ever would have placed me as an investment banker or doing corporate finance or being an accountant. They said that everything about me shows I should be a creative director or a film director or something in music. So I kind of, I guess, um, because creativity fascinates me and I, and I, you know, I kind of adore it. Being in marketing services is that outlet. So working for these sort of businesses in this sphere. I find really interesting and the people within them are always really interesting because you get a lot of people who are very, very less sort of field and quite, you know, oddballish being in this sort of area. And I quite like that because I'm quite quirky myself. So, so working with people that have got great creative businesses um, or just interesting propositions is the thing that really drives me. And that's why we're in this sector, I'd say. And the rest of the partners here are exactly the same, to be fair. Yeah, I'd like to zoom out in a moment on marketing services, but looking at consumer insight businesses or market research businesses, as they they used to be called, and one can debate what they should be called, that is not a sector that has been renowned for creativity necessarily. Mm. So how come that became part of the mix in terms of Green Square's representation? Yeah, it's kind of odd, really. I mean, I guess I guess the key thing is we we act for shareholders of marketing services companies on the side of their other agencies to acquire a best fit. So that's strategically, chemistry, and of course, financially. Uh, we often work with them on a journey to get them there as well and help them with their strategy and get them ready along the way. Um, so insight is something we sort of is is aligned to it. Our clients are everything from traditional full service added groups through to performance marketing, data tech, medcoms, healthcare, experiential. Um, but insight kind of pervades a lot of that sort of those sort of businesses. Um, I have a bit of background in it because of the fact that at Corporate Edge, which was a business I built, we had a, a, a company in there called Ignite that was research. It was twelve people. And that drove a lot of what the rest of the group did. So we we did a lot of brand, corporate brand work, investor relations, um, sort of annual reports, things like that. But the branding side was driven by insight. So we'd always put a client into the insight team before we did anything else. So when we sort of set Green Square up, research was one of the things on our lists and insight that we would work with because, yeah, okay, it's, as you say, it's not necessarily seen as being creative, but it does actually influence everything. And and starting with research is something that's always quite important to us. Mm. Yeah, I, well, obviously, I would agree with that, given my background. I mean, yeah. I, I want we might go off schedule like a little bit. But do you think there's an argument that it's becoming even more important recently in that at one stage, say five years ago, for the sake of argument, there seemed to be a sense in the market that traditional consumer research by which I mean asking people questions fundamentally. Yeah. And then you can run lots of you know, fancy techniques on top of that. 
was going out of fashion, that it's all about big data, so on and so on. But then you seem to have, over the last five years or so, there's been a realization that there's now so much data that you actually need to understand why things are happening and you need people who can ascertain what's relevant and then analyze it and turn it into outputs that uh, you know that businesses can act on and they can use and so to, to me it seems to actually be coming back into vogue to some extent yeah i mean i think yeah i think what's been interesting if you look at the research transactions that we've worked on and acted for there's a mix so some of it's been it's been quite broad so some of it's been 30 people consultancy focused specialists people like jigsaw circle rainmakers csi who are really focused on that sort of consultative looking at the outputs filtering it down working out and solving the problem for the clients so it's almost moving into brand strategy because that's exactly what they're doing they're distilling it but other transactions we've done that have been really successful have been 200 people plus big quant coal syndication players you know people like cadence which we sold to cross marketing in tokyo and b2b international that's um bought by Dentsu. Um, so there is a broad mix, but I'll definitely say that ability to filter down the noise because anyone can do a survey now because it's all free, you know, you survey monkey and you've got rent and rate, all these sort of things. The, everyone can do that, but it's, it's what you do with the information that's key. And I think there's a real space for those sort of consultative, proper strategy insight agencies that drive results. Mm. And do you find those? Well, two questions. Those strategy-focused agencies, do they end up having to focus on particular sectors to have sufficient knowledge to really be able to provide the advice? That's the first component of it. And secondly, are they beginning to be able to charge like consultants? This is something we've touched on before, whereby they're providing potentially great advice, but yeah. they just the, the business model is almost an old cost plus business model in terms yeah. of you know survey yeah. it's cost per interview that type of thing yeah. rather than a true consultancy model. Yeah, I think I think these sort of agencies have to position themselves as consultancies in the first place. I think it's quite hard to go from being seen as a research agency to then try and position yourself as a consultancy agency, even if you are with the existing clients. It's normally the new clients that come in, if you're seen as consultants, that will pay the money. We have also had situations where you know, we've done transactions for people where because they've become part of a consultancy or a bigger group, it means they can now charge more fees. And there is that kind of psychology with everyone. You know, no one got fired for hiring IBM or whatever from the old days, and it, and it still pervades now. So if, and I think... With insight also, I'll come on to the other question about being specialist in a second. I think with all insight also, there is a danger that people within these businesses tend to be kind of uh, a bit cottage industry. They love what they do. They love the craft of what they do. And therefore, they don't charge properly in the first place or don't value their output properly. And they think, you know, we're going to charge on a daily rate because this is it. And I'm quite happy to receive that. But if you're building a group or building a business, you can't operate like that. You have to look at what the problem is and charging to solve the problem and giving a fee rather than the sort of working it out on a spreadsheet of time management. So I think there's that side of it. Um, it's certainly the more successful insight agencies we see are those that have got uh, people that are not doing research on the day-to-day themselves. It's very hard to grow from that. And back in the day, when I was at another place, we, I did the Flamingo deal years and years ago. 
And that was a really successful agency because they had Kirsty and Maggie at the helm running the business. And, and then they had divisional directors heading it up within that who were really strong as well. So there's a proper flow down model. Um, coming back to your point about being specialists in a particular area, that is actually important. I think as a 30 person agency in strategy or consulting, you can't really be all things to all people. You have to really understand a particular part of the market, but you don't have to just focus on one thing. So if you take sort of someone, you know, like Jigsaw we've mentioned or Rainmakers, uh, or indeed Circle. They all had areas that they were really, really strong in, but two or three. So it was kind of like financial services, it was healthcare, bit of tech, you know, that side of it, and less of the sort of more generalist um, FMCG stuff that you can get anywhere. And most of them have, you know, in fact, I'm just talking about those three, to be honest, because not dissimilar sizes. They um, all had not necessarily, well, client dependencies can be a bit of an issue. But they had three or four very strong clients within that that have been with them for a very long time. And I think that helps. That helps with the business. So from an acquirer's perspective, that gives them, even if they're not um, centrally contracted you know, contracts on the basis of we're going to pay you X per year, yeah. that it reassures them in that they can see certain big companies within certain consistent sectors are coming back year after year. Yeah, yeah. What, what you don't want is a big dependency, like more than twenty five percent, well, more than twenty percent, really, in a single client. But in these smaller consultancies, thirty people, you often will see that. You'll see sort of thirty, thirty percent, which can be an issue for acquirers because if you're making a sort of twenty five, thirty percent margin, you lose that client. The thing's just gone to break even. But um, unfortunately, that is a nature of insight and research. They tend to be quite sticky with their clients. And they become more or less they're almost like embedded into the clients. It becomes their research department, if you like. So that's how they're seen. Um, but yeah, I think it's a particular nuance within the research insight sector that you get these long term relationships and deep understanding and expertise of these particular markets. But equally, that's attractive to acquirers, particularly if they're looking to plug a certain area that they do not have expertise in. It can be, you know, quite attractive. <laughs> Yeah, I could see it's a, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? It gives you yeah. the stickiness, but it gives you exposure if, if something goes yeah. wrong. What, what do acquirers think it, it, in terms of relationships with corporate groups, though? So I'll make it up. Someone like a, a BT would have lots of different brands within BT. Yeah. Um, so does that give them some degree of kind of reassurance? I, I imagine you've probably got to show that they're able to, I'm thinking that thing is through as I go along, that there are actually different buying centers within BT. So the yeah. EE is commissioning separately from BT broadband or whatever. Yeah. 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 This is kind of, this is an age old problem because we have a lot of clients that come to us who have got that sort of situation going on. And I'd say, but the thing is, if there's no overall, well, if there's no umbrella agreement over the top, that makes life a bit easier. Because if you're contracted under an umbrella agreement across the entire organization, then one person can turn that switch off, no matter what everybody says. Um, but where you have different contracts within different bits of somewhere like BT and all different areas, it gives acquirers more comfort. Um, we always try to make it obviously clear that the risk is minimal and of having over-reliance when that situation's there. Unfortunately, acquirers 
they don't like the risk of it, but also a DD team, when they come in, will look to use this to their advantage in terms of negotiating something around the price or structure. Though we've had situations where people have said, well, actually, client X is you know over 30% of your business, which is always a real challenge. And therefore, we want to pay lesser multiple because there's more risk on that. And we'll counter it with, well, I'll tell you what then, at the moment, our client's doing 2 million EBIT or whatever it is. And as long as we're still doing at least 2 million EBIT within the next two years, year one, year two, year three, regardless of the mix of clients, then we will claw that multiple back because we're still delivering it. So it could be we lose that client and replace it with somebody else or we keep the client. doesn't matter. But we've done deals like that where we have actually dropped to two multiple points but clawed it back over the next two years simply by proving it's still there and that the EBIT is still there because that's ultimately what the acquirer is buying is future performance. They pay a multiple on current profits because they expect the business to grow and to still be there. So if you can, yeah, you can mitigate that risk for people, it helps. But it is a problem. And DD, well, they will use it to their advantage. In terms of the way Green Square operates, would you be paid then contingent on those types of results so if you help a client negotiate on that basis then you'll claw back some of those ebit points i imagine you probably have a structure whereby there's a certain retainer you've got in place you get a fee but then you do do you also operate on the basis of performance related um, absolutely that's exactly how we work we're quite different to a lot of our competitive set in that our fees follow our clients um deal value so yes, we have a retainer-based thing, which we do, which obviously people have got to be committed and we're investing an awful lot of time for what's really not covered anywhere near on the retainer. So the majority of our money comes on success, which is why we don't like taking things on or we don't take things on if we don't think we can get them away. It doesn't work for the client and it doesn't work for us either. But in that scenario, well, in any scenario, we receive our fees as a percentage when our client gets it. So we'll get our percentage of the initial payment when it arrives if it's deferred, then we'll get a percentage of the deferred when it arrives. And on the earnouts, when that gets paid, we get a percentage of that. We don't charge retainers beyond completion. So we do not charge retainers during the um during the earnout process or any of that. But we are absolutely wedded to our clients throughout that process because it's in everyone's interest to do so. And even when the earnout's been pretty paltry, frankly, and our fee's been not great. Um we still stick to them like glue. It's what we do. And we're quite, well, we're really big on integrity. So you can talk to any of our clients, some of which the earn-out fees ended up being sort of like 50 grand or something, which isn't here or there for us, without wishing to sound arrogant after sort of three or four years. But um, we've put the same amount of that of effort in as we would for much bigger deals. Yeah, And then you will stick with them, even though you're not on a retainer. Do you try and advise yeah. them at all? And- oh, we're, yeah, we're, we're, yeah, we're always there for advice. So people phone us up all the way through their earnouts for advice and help and what they should do, because there's all sorts of things happen during an earnout. And we often find that the deals have got to be restructured partway through simply because the, the nature of the acquisitions change. People might want to integrate it fully. They might be bought themselves. It might go into a different area. So we're there for that. And we don't charge additional fees for that. That's part of our own out percentage. It's just what we do. But just in terms of the fundamentals, I mean, what what are purchasers looking for out of companies, let's say in the insight space, just to narrow it down a bit as opposed to marketing services in, in general? Yeah, okay. Well, I think I think actually you can look at 
it, it doesn't matter whether it's research or marketing services or any any businesses. There are seven key value drivers that acquirers look for that we focus on. Um, and they, they might not articulate, acquirers might not articulate it in the same way that we do. But the key things are, first one is proposition. There's what do you do? I mean, how do you deliver the work? What are the processes and methodologies? And it's kind of like making sure the, and there's always the same sort of thing about standout USP and all of that. But you need to be really clear about what your offering is. You don't want to be humdrum. You need to kind of, you know, you've got to have something that differentiates you. So um, I always remember that uh, one of my lads sent me a text of me. He was at Reading Festival and Metallica were closing it and he was at the front. And he said, this is being streamed live. Have a look. So I put it on. And um, that was great because basically the band came onto the stage. And there was, well, there was a whole build up to this thing, right? And the three of them come on the stage. And the whole crowd's going absolutely nuts. And James Hetfield steps up to the mic and he just says, we're Metallica and this is what we do. And they go straight into it. And it's like the crowd just go ballistic. And I sat there and thought that is the best articulation of a proposition I've ever seen in my entire life because they do one thing and they do it brilliantly and they're best in best of what they do. There's no one better. So, you know, they're not the only people doing what they do, to quote uh, Jerry Garcia, but they are the best of what they do. And that's what you need to do. Proposition is absolutely key. So if you've got a really clear proposition and something that's not sort of blurred in the market with everybody else, and you've got good processes and methodologies, that, that's your first starting point. Your second point really flows onto that. So that's market positioning. So how do you present within your peer group and your competitive set? Yeah, what is your differentiator? Why should clients choose you over the others? Why should they buy from you? The proposition and positioning, absolutely key. We do these things called Ascension Days, and half the day is spent on that and really understanding. And if you look at the way, a bit of advice for agencies, research agencies, anybody, take a look at your website and stack it up next to your competitors. And I bet you say the same things. We're more strategic. We're more creative. We have better insights than anybody else. We've got better methodologies, better surveys. Everyone's saying it's the same thing. So you need to look at that and work out what you can change. The next thing is team. So it's about how is your organization structured. You need to look at the key people and make sure they're incentivized properly. So acquirers want to see it doesn't have to be broad. You don't want everybody in the organization like an EOT owning a chunk of it. But you want to see key people with some kind of equity incentivization, be it an option scheme, a growth scheme. What what turns acquirers off? is one or two people who are sort of getting later in life with all the equity between them and nobody beneath them being incentivized because their worry is that they'll pay a decent chunk of money and these people are just head for the door. And then they've got the second tier saying, well, hold on a minute. We didn't get anything. What's in it for me? Otherwise, I'll disappear. So that is so important. Some acquirers actually stipulate 20% minimum in equity options in the team to make sure it's protected. And it's better to have a smaller price with a much bigger pie to be fair. Then next thing's financials, obviously. I mean, it goes without saying. And buyers pay a multiple of EBIT, as I said earlier, because they want to see growth. So you need to demonstrate consistent growth over a period, not flatlining with the right metrics. So this is things like year-on-year -year growth in gross profit, not turnover, but look at your turnover to field ratio if you're a research company, um, because that can vary depending on the type of work you're doing. But growth in GP year-on-year -year is really important. Your staff cost ratio is absolutely critical and staff cross the GP not to turn over. That should be between 55 and 60%. And your EBIT ratio, which if you're in an insight space doing consultancy, you should be looking at somewhere between 20 to 
Uh, we've had clients doing more than that, where they've been particularly consultancy driven. They've been up towards a 40% EBIT ratio point. Um, but you need to have a deep understanding of your numbers and also the ability to forecast. So, you know, have underperforming on a forecast is as bad as missing it because people want to know with some certainty when they're buying you that they can see where the growth is going to be and you understand your business. Um, couple of other things, growth strategy. This is the most important thing, actually, in all of it that buyers look for. And there are two areas you want to, if you think about it, if you have the sheet of A3, if you put on the left-hand side, um, how are you going to grow it, whether or not you're acquired? So as a standalone, what are you doing? What's your growth strategy? What what things are you, are you embarking on? And you need to have a couple that you're already doing to prove they work. And then you want, on the right-hand side of that page, you want to have what you would do with the right acquirer and what they need to bring to the parties. This could be new geographies, new sectors, related offerings. Um, the, you've got to have a reason to sell, and it's not just because we want to get some money. Uh, the final thing is stability. So be really sort of hard-nosed about if there's anything in your, in your business that could cause a calamity. Um, you know, Key micro-challenges are things like client dependency we talked about, or reliance on particular team members, either from a skill set or client relationship point of view. If you're deep into semiotics and you've got one person that's a head of semiotics and they're the only person that's there, and if they departed, you'd have a problem, then that's something to be aware of. Um, but, you know, the pandemic proves certain agency offerings are more at risk than others in the scenario, and there's been lots of learnings as a result of that. Hmm. Um, thank you, Tony. It's a brilliant summary, which I shall encourage all the agencies I'm involved in to, to absorb. What were some of the learnings out of the pandemic that you just referenced? Well, I guess it's kind of like certain things within, I think off the top of my head now, because it's kind of when we looked at the pandemic and what happened there, um, there were certain, I say certain agency offerings. I'm talking the broader picture of the type of business. So this isn't necessarily research agencies, although quite a few research clients of ours did find their clients turning off the tap. So some of the people we're talking to, particularly in the States, just went absolutely quiet. So I think there was a bit of a cutback on that to begin with, and some of it's bounced back subsequently. But I'm talking about particular areas of marketing. So clients we had in experiential, for example, or clients that re- that relied on a lot of outdoor contact with people took an absolute battering. And that that hit research agencies to a degree because you're no longer questioning people on the street. You're not if you if you've got like loads of customer satisfaction trackers or stuff like that going on that require you to be outside of stores asking questions, that wasn't going to happen. The experiential businesses, anything in that kind of space, events, they'll took a proper battery. And what came out of the pandemic is people have pivoted the way they do things. So, you know, a lot of research obviously is online anyway, but it's probably moved more so. Um, people do a lot more sort of interviews from their bedrooms and stuff on video. I mean, the massive learning out of the pandemic was the use of video. Like now we're sitting here on Zoom doing doing a call. All of our calls with clients, first potential calls are, are all done on video. Pre-pandemic, we didn't do it because we're all just too embarrassed or just didn't feel good being on video, right? It just felt uncomfortable, awkward. But now it's natural and it's changed the way we do business. But yeah, a lot of those businesses have done things differently. So experiential, a lot of it's online now. And clients yeah. we had in that space that took a battering have actually come back better and stronger, to be fair, and bigger as a result. Looking at various trends that have been hot over recent years, 
And, you know, there could be a whole the whole range of them. You know, it could be performance marketing versus upper funnel, yeah. SaaS, Web3, which no one's talking about now, it seems, anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Generative AI. What's hot now? What's catching buyers' attention? Or what are, you know, what, what are the must-haves even? I'll say we're still in the world of data and tech. People still love data and tech. Um, AI is interesting, um, but we don't really... I haven't really seen anyone that's properly harnessing that. I mean, you know, it's it's not going away. I mean, the hype cycle is not a hype cycle. Those people at Bletchley for today's Global AI Conference uh, are certainly there for a reason because it is a bit of a worry. I think whilst there's been a lot of press about AI and a lot of talk, we're actually waiting to see how agencies are using it to their advantage whilst mitigating the risks of it eating their fees. So, yeah, it's particularly... Um, looking at market research, how people are doing that, because you can use it for a lot of simulation. So, you know, we spoke with a PE firm this week and they're using it to simulate investment performance and decision-making based on all sorts of variables and macroeconomic scenarios. So they're using it to plug all these different things in, looking at an investment they're about to make and saying, what will be the critical points on that? And they can do it far quicker and in more depth than analysts plugging numbers into spreadsheets. It's just instantaneous. Um, so, and, you know, we know clients in the market research space that are investing quite heavily in understanding it. Um, there's a danger of AI being a bit of a race to the bottom in terms of businesses using it just to make productivity gains and how can we cut corners, uh, which is great for, right? But smart agencies are actually working out what they charge for that can't be currently mimicked by AI. Um, but that whole area at the moment, I think it's going to be, it's going to be big. I mean, Web3 is still there. It hasn't gone away, but it's kind of been swept aside in the sort of narrative because of the whole AI debate and what's been going on, particularly how fast it's accelerated in recent months. Other areas that are really hot at the moment, I'd say, are healthcare, medcoms, medical communications, lifestyle, yeah, that sort of area. Um, we did four transactions last year or the year before in that space, all of which had multiple buyers across trade and PE going for them. And that's a really interesting area. So if you're in research and insight in the healthcare space, that can be a really good place to be right now because that's what you know, a lot of acquirers are looking for. And a lot of these bigger medcoms businesses don't necessarily have that depth of insight within healthcare. Um, so we did a transaction inspired health, which is in Boston. That was another one that was you know, hotly contested. So um, that was healthcare research. And that area, I think, in research is, yeah, it's pretty key. Yeah, it's not an area I, I know very well, but I do know some businesses that seem to do very well within that healthcare area. So I wanted to touch on PE versus strategics, because yep. I think there used to be a sense the Marcoms world, tell me if I'm wrong, that PE wasn't that interested in the Marcoms world for whatever reasons. And yeah. That seems to have changed. So would you agree with Adam? Well, if so, why is that? Yeah, I mean, it's changed really in the last three years. I'd say it's really ramped up. And for a long time, P didn't really understand agencies, um, particularly creative. So less about research, I'd say, but they would bundle that in with the whole Marcom sphere, which we talked about earlier. Um, but they couldn't really... 
they didn't really understand it or how they could value creative. So, you know, basically they didn't understand the crowns. And we saw a lot of car crashes in the early days, the PE firms being enamored with the glamour of the marketing world and the sexiness of it, then getting cross when they didn't see year consistent year-on-year growth of things they had invested in. And, um, yeah, we were brought into a couple of things to help rebase the equity between the management team and the PE because they're just going in different directions. Um, yeah, and the problem is you, know, you do a PE deal if you've ramped it up with debt and you've got debt at a certain coupon that you're trying to repay and your profits equate to that interest coupon, you become a thing called a zombie because you can't buy anything, you can't hire anybody, you're just wandering about paying the PE firm, so that's not great. But then sort of things became a lot more, this is, I'm going to talk about early days, I'm talking about 2010, it's a long time ago. But then things became a lot more about marketing, ROI and performance and numbers and PE understand numbers. That became a lot easier for them to get into this space when everything became about measurability and accountability and it was more data driven that said in recent years there's been even more sophistication within pe firms in their understanding of the nu- nuances of marketing and agencies themselves have become smarter too so you know the smart agencies are much better commercially they're better managed their metrics are more transparent the whole industry has become wiser and you're seeing these sort of um, buy and build groups, PE-backed groups now, that are doing pretty well. So you've got people like Sideshow, um, you know, backed by Waterland. You know, that's a, a case in point. You know, they, they bought a, a great business there. They've been built up by um, another Tony who have bought four agencies, put them together and turned it into something really clever. And Waterland have backed that to go on to do other things. And they're in the States buying stuff at the moment. If you look at other things that funny enough, Waterland have done, they did IMC, which is integrated medical with medical medcoms business. We sold Indigo into that, which is a compliance medcom specialist. And that's flying along as well. So that's been rebranded Cyrus. Um, but you're seeing quite LDC bought CTI. They've been investing in that. So there's quite a lot of these buy and build Mobius. There's another one, so it will come into the head minds of some of the things we did, the boundary, which we sold into Mobius. There's a lot of this happening. And PE are actually looking at market research in quite a lot of depth as well. But they are looking for bigger players. They're looking for platforms. So I'm talking, yeah, minimum 2 million EBIT, preferably 4 to 5 million EBIT as a platform that they can build on. But really, that's where the money is. I mean, yeah, I was quoted in the drum um last week when i was a little bit vociferous about <laughs> marketing services companies floundering about on aim that can't afford to buy anything and PE needs to come in take them off the market invest in it properly with a strategy and do something different um so uh <laughs> but um yeah but that's where it is i think you know PE understand it um they're a mixed bag they can be excellent bedfellows and they can be quite tricky um my business we did around deal with that by three i wouldn't do anything at this that sort of level anymore just not doing it but they were great because they were completely benign they let me crack on with it and you know when we had the dark days between 2001 2005 i think they got a little bit more tricky but that's understandable you know but we repaid all their debt and they were fine but other p firms can be a bit um rapacious so you need to be quite careful as to who you go to yeah, good, good advice as a whole. And, and interesting, going back to the insights world in the yeah. point that you make, that PE is numbers-based. And yeah. yes, I mean, putting to one side qual against quant and all the rest of it, a lot of insight firms actually are numbers-based too. 
Yeah. Um, and I think some of the conversations yeah. we've had in the past is that you, you can work with insight firms to actually show a greater degree of projectability and market share yeah. and cadence around what they're doing than they think they yeah. may actually have. So yeah. I, I can, I can see why it's, um, why it's very attractive. Final question, then we'll do a quick fire round. And this is an unfair one. I'm going to ask you to pull out your crystal ball, Cody. So what's yeah. going on? in the market at the moment where's it going to go all that type of thing uh right okay if you'd asked me this question about four weeks ago i would have been slightly more positive than i am now i'm always glass half full kind of guy that's just the way i am um i think this this year the market's taken a bit of a battering um first we, we've still got the ukraine war tumbling along which caused quite a lot of people a lot of worry previously um interest rate hike and inflation has been a problem and that's particularly linked to PE type deals because they fund a lot of their stuff with debt. So that kind of means you've got to be driving bigger margins in order to cover that debt. And that's an issue, especially for companies that have got debt on board anyway, that's being refinanced at the moment because it's quite hard. I think the Israeli war has been the thing that's probably slowed everything right down. So the brakes aren't totally on. You know, we've got transactions going through and great businesses will always sell. So I don't think, you know, but it's become a lot more about being being that niche thing that people definitely want um, or being sizable. You know, you've got to be of a decent size and therefore so size isn't less. Bigger isn't better. Better is better, right? But there's a perception that the bigger you are, the more um, sort of safe and stable you are. But, yeah, we go through cycles, you know. You go right back to all the years. There's always something. There's like the rise of ISIS that worried everybody. Is the world going to come to a halt and through to Trumpism, through to Brexit, through to Iran crisis, through to potential Chinese economy? There's always something that causes a problem. And yeah, we just say conditions are always perfect. We just crack on. You've got to rise above all of it because we're never going to get back to a status quo, which is normal. There's going to be something every year. And it's just a load of cacophony. And the world just has to move on. You can't stand still. So, but coming back to your question, where do I think it's going to be? I think towards the end of this year, it's going to be a bit slow. Um, it generally is around December anyway, because people aren't really doing transactions then. Um, but I'd like to think that come January, February, things will start picking up again. Much as they did in pandemic, yeah, because mm. the world ground to a halt in yeah, in March 2020. Um, yeah, we'd stop charging all our clients retainers. We just said it's not that we're not working. We are working for you, but we don't know where the market is. It doesn't feel fair taking a monthly fee from you if this goes away. We just stopped charging. But when it all came back in August, September, yeah, everyone was back on full throttle and the goodwill we engendered from that was amazing. And 2021, I think we did £150 million worth of transactions, which is the biggest year we've ever done in terms of yeah, running transactions through. It's, it's hard to predict. Yeah. And as you say, when you get slowdowns in this world, by which I mean the M&A and investment world, to some extent, you also get pent up demand. I mean, the influence of interest rates notwithstanding. Yeah. Yeah. But again, Tony, conscious of time, and I want to do a quick fire round if that's all right. So I'll just ask a question (laughs) and then you uh, give me an answer. Uh, You don't seem like a man who'd make many mistakes. Oh, right. I've got a whole bag of mistakes that I, that, I, that I help our clients with to stop them dropping the falling knife. <laughs> However, what would you say is the biggest good mistake you've ever made? By by which I mean one that, you know, you're kind of glad you made in retrospect or was a good learning opportunity. 
Oh, there's a few of those actually. Um, uh, we'll be good one, good one. Okay. Um, I got involved in the acquisition of a New York digital agency back in 2000. Um, and when we should have passed it up early doors, it was when the whole dot com boom thing was still going along and everyone thought we had to get a digital agency for our business. And so we're going to buy this thing. Did quite a lot of DD, got additional funding in from our backers. So we got three hours to stump up a few more million. Um, but then just before closing the deal, I decided to walk away or something didn't feel right. And I literally woke up in the morning and said to my wife, I'm not doing this. There's something I'm just not comfortable. It wasn't making much profit. It was all on revenue, things are today. And I wasn't sure when we were going to see the payback to be fair. And in a PE-backed business, you need to have payback. You've got to be getting the cash flow through in order to cover off the debt and the interest. So I walked away from it and it caused a hell of a ruckus. So it wasn't really a mistake. It was a mistake getting involved in it in the first place and putting six months of effort in and upsetting the founders of that business. Um, well, we offered them a much reduced price on the basis that they would get a load of equity instead, performance equity that would mean they'd get twice as much value for that business than they would have got otherwise and end up owning a big chunk of our group. Um, but they walked away. Um, but that agency went bust straight after 9-11. So if we had bought it, it would have taken us down with it. Um, so it went bust literally nine months after we were talking to them. So that was a that was probably the biggest good mistake. So um, I kind of, yeah... Spent a lot of time and money on that deal and then didn't do it, but it was uh, the right thing to do. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because not only did you follow your gut, but you were also skeptical about revenue multiples, which is also a different conversation. Yeah, that's a different conversation for another day. I mean, I, I think in fast growth businesses where you're adding staff ahead of revenue, but you've actually can see the pipeline, that's really important. I mean, in this, we were just getting completely carried away with the whole thing because our clients wanted us to have an office in New York and this just represented a quick and easy way to get into it. Final couple of questions. What's your favourite book or recent book? Or it could be a movie, piece of media, anything like that, <laughs> and why? <laughs> I always look at when someone's asked about favourite book and it's always like, oh, what it be? Right, I have two, because yeah, I saw this question in Sunday Times the other day on some interview. And it's Anxious People by Frederick Batman. Um, who's the same guy that wrote a guy with a band called O, and The Second Coming by John Niven. Um, both of those books look at people's inner personalities, what makes them tick, and sort of insecurities and all sorts of other things in a very humorous and irre irreverent way. And if you haven't read them, read them. The Second Coming is brilliant, and I'm not a religious person at all, but it's all about Jesus coming back as a rock star and American Idol and, and what happens and how human behavior hasn't really changed. <laughs> but it's those, very funny, very irreverent. Those are fascinating. When I ask people this question, I say I'll add them to the list, and I do, and then I almost never read them. <laughs> but those, but those two, I actually, I, I may well do. Those sound really. They are brilliant. Anxious people. They put it on Netflix, but it was rubbish um, as a series. It didn't work. But the book is great. It's about a bank heist that goes wrong. So I haven't spoiled it. That happens in the opening paragraphs of the book and what goes wrong and, and there are nine different characters involved in the whole thing it's very cleverly written made me laugh and really resonated but the second coming's brilliant as long as you don't mind a lot of foul language and everything else going on but john Niven is a brilliant writer yeah really well, funny as you know tony i i only like foul language however <laughs> that's a different that's a different subject so <laughs> get the second coming you'll laugh <laughs> in the minute you start yeah okay. <laughs> So final question, sorry if it's a little bit of a cheeky one, but what would yeah. your wife say are your best and worst qualities? Right. Um, 
all sorts of <laughs> best qualities um getting stuff done around the house and yeah doing stuff for the kids and all that sort of stuff i'm always doing things um you know so um, and i love property refurbishment and diy i mean kevin mcleod stole my get up and my looks so bastard um <laughs> this leads to the worst qualities i think also which is um because i'm always finding something to do and always fiddling about things um i kind of never have time to do other nice things like going for walks with my wife apart from walking the dog around a park um but he's really i well and decrepit now so we don't even get out and do that very much or taking her out for lunch and stuff like that so i'd say those are probably my biggest thing well, it sounds like you're you're busy and and it's clearly working. You seem in very good shape. Thanks so much oh, for doing you. this. Pleasure. Thank you for asking me. I feel you know very honoured to have uh, been asked to do this, and I hope uh, I hope it's uh, been helpful. Uh, very much so, and hopefully we'll be able to catch up in person soon. Definitely over a beer and read those books. They're very good. So much fun doing that interview with Tony. And for the first time in a while, I've actually started reading one of the book recommendations I've been given. It's really good, although not necessarily to everyone's tastes. We have more to come in the next few weeks with Tina Wilson, one of Nielsen's most senior female execs. She's talking about her journey in the media measurement space. And Jamin Brazil, entrepreneur par excellence in this area. He was the founder and CEO of Decipher and then Focus Vision, exec chair of HubX, now chief revenue officer of VoxPotMe and a host of other great endeavors. They're both great interviews too. Thanks again for Tony for this interview, the Insight Platforms for their support, to Brighter for sponsoring, and to you for listening. See you next time.